When you work in educational leadership, you don't get off at five o'clock. Your mind is always on the clock, thinking of ways to solve problems for your students, parents, and teachers. On the Clock is your go-to podcast to learn valuable insights from education leaders across the United States. I'm your host, Todd Dallas-Lamb, former White House appointee to the U.S. Department of Education, and we are now On the Clock. Welcome back to On the Clock. I am your host, Todd Dallas-Lamb, and my guest today is Dr. Quinton Shepard. He is the superintendent of Victoria ISD in the great state of Texas. Uh, Quentin, how today are you today? Is a, today is a good day. I'm feeling better and better day by day. Uh, I've been dealing with some health issues, but uh, but but feeling really good today. That's that's. I'm so glad to hear that you're uh, you're on the mend. I um I woke up this morning, and my wife said, "You're interviewing Quentin Shepard. She works in my consulting um, business." And I said, "Yeah." And she goes, "Oh, he's a big deal. Um, she she follows." She follows superintendents like some people follow college, you know, football recruiting. <laughs> that is funny. Thank you for that. Made my day. Let's wrap it up there. I'm oh, good. <laughs> exactly right. Um, and to prove it, uh, Quinn, I'm, I'm showing the book now for the folks that are listening or and also watching um, on YouTube. Uh, your new book is The Secret to Transformational Leadership. You uh, also have some help with this book from Sarah Williamson. And if I could go ahead and take a crack at introducing the concept, and then you can fill in the blanks. But I was, uh, I think we were mentioning this pre, pre-taping. I don't read books like this very often. I, I read a lot of books about history. Uh, I listen to a lot of podcasts about history. But I was, um, I was, I was stunned at how it got me thinking. Um, and what you're, you're trying to do is introduce a new language for leadership um, based on the changes that you you see are are both both forced upon you and and perhaps even more importantly needed in how you lead and and I think you make the point really well that it's not just about um, for educators this could be in any line of of work in which you lead and I I, I was struck by the 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 language some of the words that you you start talking about are compassion. And, you know, when, when I was growing up, a leader to me looked a lot like General Patton. You know, if you ever saw the movie Patton, if you ever saw the movie The Great Santini, my dad was basically the Great Santini. And if you could sum up the old way of leadership in one phrase, it, and it kept coming back to me, Quentin, it's my way yeah. or the highway, right? That, that is the, the, the core belief of an old school leader. And I think your book makes the point that we have a different breed of cat coming down the pike in the young people that we have. You mentioned that social media probably has a role in that, the changes and that it's really in, incumbent upon a, a new leader to really change their philosophy. And that can be really hard, can it? Because we're so ingrained into the old yeah, way of sure. leadership. And and virtually every you know book that that's that's looked as the seminal piece in leadership is built on this this antiquated paradigm that you you very well described. And I try to do this through the book. I think I could do a better job in in future editions of the book. That I don't want to ever cast judgment on that style of leadership as wrong. And I I love that you're way into history because I think. You, you can bring that into this uh, context and conversation as well to understand that that notion of my way or the highway actually made sense in that era. And, and I talk about this a little bit in the book, but, you know, General Patton 
he had information that was uniquely consolidated within his brain. We didn't live in an open source, open world environment. And, and he had more access to unique information, arguably, than other folks in leadership positions throughout the organization, right? And so because he had privileged access to information in his brain, then he actually did hold a place of power that, that requires things like hierarchies and power structures and so on and so forth. And so I think it, is ex it was exactly the right leadership for that era. But given that we now live in a different era where, yes, as a leader, we still have some access to information that's, that's unique. But when you when you really stop and and like be honest with yourself, it's infinitesimally small, right? Everything we do, we put up online, or it's available online, or some other school district posted online, or some other business posted online, or so on and so forth. Everything's available, and so we can't we can't continue to pretend like, oh, I have this privileged view of reality, and you must subordinate your will to me uh, if we're going to get anything done around here. I. I as I mentioned, I, I keep having these flashbacks of my own failure in leadership, even within my own family. So I, I kept thinking of throwing a ball, a baseball to my oldest son and, and just believing that it was drill and kill. If I just kept doing it, he would figure it out. It was only later, a few years later that I was told he just doesn't like things being thrown at him. Right. And, and I, I was, I came from the perspective of my own father who just stood out in the backyard and, and forced me to catch footballs until I, I stopped being afraid of it. And to your point, it kind of worked for me. Like my dad's philosophy wasn't all that wrong then, but that I transferred that philosophy to my own son and it was absolutely the wrong way. And I, I really made a breakthrough with my son when I just figured out that he's not me and that, that these kids have they're, they're, they're wired a little differently, maybe a lot differently. And you, your book makes the point that among other reasons uh, for these, these students and their differences, you think social media oh, yeah, does have a sure, role in that. For sure. And I think you just, uh, again, you, you beautifully articulated the pivot from competence to compassion, right? Competence is throw the ball, catch the ball. Now, if your son's job, like if he was a professional ball player and that was his job, then he absolutely has to develop some competence around that. And part of it might be drill and kill and skill and, and all the rest of it that goes along with it. But if it's just transformational, like we want him to enjoy this process and enjoy the process of becoming whatever that is, then you can take a more compassionate, compassionate approach. And of course, compassion, passion, passion is to suffer. Compassion is to suffer with. And so then it's this question of like, well, how, how is my son suffering? Is it, is it in like, he just doesn't like this thing thrown at him at this, at this high velocity or, or whatever that suffering is, or maybe he just doesn't understand the mechanics of throwing it or, you know, whatever it is. Well, a compassion can lead to competence and competence can lead to compassion. But I think it's uh, a thoughtful leader knows how to juxtapose or, or live between those two realities because they're two very, very different ways of being a leader. It's, it's two very different ways of taking people. You, you you talk about leading from the middle, which I was the second I heard that phrase, I recoiled a bit from it. But as you started to flesh that out a little bit, it made a lot more sense to me. And that was this idea that you have to, as a leader, you know, you are the top, um, you know, responsible person at Victor Victoria ISD, right? 
Um, but you have a number of constituencies that you have to get on board. And, 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 and you really make the point that the first uh, element, almost non-negotiable element that you have to have is be able to have yeah. trust with those those constituencies, whether it's your board, whether it's uh, parents, uh, community leaders. And so maybe flesh out a little bit more on yeah. leading so, from the middle. You know, tr- here's the thing. For anybody in the public sphere leadership, um, trust is your currency, full stop. Like you, you, that's the only currency you really have is, is trust. And so you have to, you have to find ways to connect with people and, and build that trust. And you, you just don't connect people when you walk into a room, you know, with this notion of, um, hierarchies in mind or who's the smart, trying to figure out who's the smartest person in the room. I always joke with people that I can guarantee you I'm the smartest person in the room as long as I'm the first and only person in the room. <laughs> After that, I'm pretty sure it's not me. Uh, but but I think yeah. you know what you do. What you do by leading from the middle is you say, okay, well, if we're going to eschew these you know, hierarchies and power structures and titles and so on and so forth, well, then then you can start talking about networks. And in networks is real power in this era. Networks is the power that is um, just all-encompassing, all uh, frightfully so. And and so then leading from the middle, and, and, and again, it's it's never a right or wrong or it's never a good or a bad. There are times where in hierarchical leadership, top-down leadership, typical hierarchies, that's that's really important for me to be able to get the, the competent work done within my organization. But when it comes to the, uh, the complex, the unknowable, well, then, then the only way to get work done, in my opinion, is through networks, right? And networks, when you when you really really build those, create create space and hold space without necessarily filling space. Hard for leaders to do, but if you can create space and hold space without necessarily filling space, then you create the opportunity for these networks to happen. And and that's leadership. That's what I mean by leadership from the middle. Managing multiple agendas to me seems to be the greatest example of leadership. It's easy to get the kids to yeah. go to McDonald's, right? That's not exactly leadership. But I just watched the movie Selma, uh, the story of uh, the Edmund Pettus Bridge crossing uh, in Alabama. And uh, one of the things that really struck me, and uh, I was reminded of it, I've read. Um, the Taylor Branch book on MLK, but I, you, when you dive into his history, you realize that he is not one voice. He actually represents and is working with, oftentimes, sometimes against, other organizations that have other agendas. So he's he's heading up the Southern Leaders, Leadership Baptist Leadership Conference. That's a lot of Southern preachers who themselves have some different ideas, different agendas about how to get to the promised land of civil rights action. But he's also worth working with students, isn't he? He's working with something called SNCC, uh, the student organization, which is a good bit more radical than, uh, the, than, the, than the, the, the Baptist preachers. And so he is literally, he's leading from the middle, isn't he? He's, he's, he's working with different agendas. He's trying to get everybody on the same page. And oftentimes they, they're not agreeing, but they have that one thing in him that you, you say is the key, that, which is they trust he's, he's, exa- he's doing that 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 I described before, he's creating the space, holding the space, making room for the conversation to happen. I think the other element that that you kind of 
you're leading into that is an important part of this is it is inevitable that we will find ourselves in conversation where there is polarity, right? And and in, especially in the world we're living in today, it seems like polarity just kind of blows up on us in, in weird, weird and somewhat uncomfortable ways. And I'm all about creating um, opportunities for constructive depolarization, right? Not more polarity, but let's like find a way to constructively depolarize this situation. So to use the example that, that you just you just raised, I like to do a thought experiment with people sometimes, and it's really, really helpful, especially in those charged and polarizing conversations. And that is to imagine a, a cone, you know, like a dunce cap, like a cone. So imagine that I have a cone, and then I put that cone inside a cardboard box. And so then I punch a hole in the top of that cardboard box, and I ask someone to come take a look through that hole and describe what you see. So if you're looking down on a cone, the only thing you're going to see is a circle, right? You're just going to see the base of the cone. And uh, so then I ask a different person to come over, and this time I punch a hole in the side of the box, so you're looking straight on, and I ask them to describe what they see. And they're going to say, well, I see a triangle. And then I can just back up because I've now created space. And I can ask the two of them, well, resolve this. And, and one person will argue till their dying breath, I see a circle. And the other person will die until they're arguing breath that I'm seeing a triangle. And here's the rub. They're both right. And they're both wrong. And I think that a lot of the conversation that's happening now on a national scale is a cone in a cube. It's just a cone in a cube. We're all looking at the same thing with various various perspectives. Savvy leaders know how to create space where we can have conversation. In the book, your co-writer, Sarah, Sarah Williamson, talks about um, the leadership of a doctor who has to diagnose a really difficult diagnosis on a young child and the doctor comes out with tears in their eyes, that is not the doctor that I grew up with. Let me give you a different doctor story. I broke my arm playing flag football, which was not my real sport. I wanted to play basketball. I was pretty good at it. I'm in eighth grade and I, I, I've broken my arm. The doctor takes the cast off. And I asked, how long do you think it is before I can start playing basketball? And instead of telling me four to six weeks, he takes my arm and, and quickly jerks my wrist back to, to induce pain to make the point that I shouldn't be playing basketball for a while. Kind of wish you just told me, you know? Um, and, 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 and so doctors now, you know, showing empathy are creating that magic word again, trust in their clientele, right? And this compassion piece is fascinating to me because compassion probably accomplishes a lot of where you're going with your goals in this book, because what does compassion do? It it immediately gives us that trust. And, 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 and compassion is empathy, but it's more than empathy. Empathy is great. Like empathy is a first step. If you don't have empathy, you will never have compassion, but empathy is just the first step. Empathy is I have this feeling, I'm feeling this, this way about what you're experiencing right now. Compassion is empathy plus action. It's like, I'm having this feeling I'm totally connected with you and we are going to do something about it. And and notice when I talked about suffering, compassion, I said it's to suffer with right. I didn't say it's to suffer for. Like I'm I'm not interested in being so empathetic that I'm suffering for someone else, but to suffer with someone else 
Well, absolutely. What does that mean? And you and you bring up doctors, and this was one of the things that Sarah and I talked about as, as I was writing the book and as she was you know pulling up the vignettes. Is if you think about the doctor experience, most of the time when we go to the doctor, I roughly would say ninety percent of the time we're in a complicated scenario. Like there's a, you're facing this complicated issue, and there's one right way to do it, and here's the medicine you should take, or here's what you should do, and here's how we're going to diagnose you and move on with life. And once in a while, when you're faced with really extreme issues, it moves from being complicated to complex. Let's, let's talk about like a cancer diagnosis, for instance, something pretty profound. Well, the doctor will tell you all of the complicated pieces. Here's, here's what happened. Here's what's happening with your body. Here's some of the next steps. Here's some of the options that are standing available. But the doctor will not say to you, this is what we're going to do. The doctor will not assert their will and say, this is the next step. The doctor at that point stops and says, here are your options. What would you like to do? What next steps would you like to take? And see, that's where you get into the world of complex because it's inherently unknowable. Like if we knew exactly what would work, that's what we would do. But oftentimes we don't know exactly what will work. And so it becomes an option, a choice. And when you find yourself in the world of complex, that's in the book. I say this fairly, you know, fairly often. That's when you should pivot into compassionate leadership. That's like your marker. That's your cue. When there's when there's going to be disagreement, when there's not a right answer, reach for compassion because you'll come up with a better solution every time. So Quentin, let's back up just a touch and, and, and focus in on some of the old language of leadership uh, that some superintendent who might be listening to this might catch themselves saying, man, I just did that the other day. And one of the things that caught my, my ear was the, the concept of blame the culture of blame. Walk, walk me through some mistakes, some commonalities of mistakes that, that, that leaders might be making still within yeah, that, that old that framework. That framework is essentially built again. And, and I keep coming back to these, what I call meta themes. So the meta theme that on top of blame is competence, right? If you live in a competence-based culture, then either you're strong or you're weak. So if we could hearken back to your you know son's was it baseball or football? You said throwing, but I wasn't sure if it was baseball. I was throwing a baseball right. at him, and finally it hit him in the throat, and he went inside, and my wife looked at me yeah. like a monster. Yeah, I can't imagine why that didn't end better. <laughs> 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 but if it's, if, if it's all about competence, if our whole world is built around competence, then when things are not going well, you're judging a situation. Maybe judging your son, you're maybe judging the context of the situation. It doesn't really matter. You're judging stuff. And judging stuff is what leads to suffering. That's what leads to human suffering. Because if you just accept the world the way it is, life's actually kind of kind of happy. It's kind of a joyous place to be. But these these judgment paradigms bring suffering into our existence. And so then what happens when we're suffering is we try to fix that suffering, try to allay that suffering. And so we do that in these sort of weird machinations in our head, and we start to do things like come up with excuses. Like if we're the ones being judged, we'll come up with an excuse for why the situation is unfolding the way that it is. And that is no longer, we are no longer locked into reality at that point. It's all about the stories we're telling ourselves in our head and some version of reality that's playing out in our head. It's not actually what's happening in real time. But the other thing that happens, of course, is blame. Like blame is a natural a natural response when we find ourselves locked into this competency uh, based paradigm, 
And one of the reasons that I became so fascinated with this is that blame and shame has been like we've worked really hard for about 50 years in education to create a culture of blame and shame everywhere you go. And and part of what was very, very frustrating to me as a superintendent is I wanted to be in in districts and schools. I wanted to lead districts and schools that were innovative. And what I discovered was innovation was impossible. It didn't matter what I did. I tried to build it. When I was in Illinois, we actually built innovation into the teacher's contracts. We had money available for innovation um, grants and so on and so forth. And it didn't really work all that well. And it was it was so very, very frustrating to me until I started to put all this together in my own mind that I was that the problem was the system of blame, the system of shame, the system of competence uh, and judgment leads people to be scared of like the consequences because folks aren't they're not afraid to fail. They're afraid of blame. Like your son wasn't actually afraid to not be able to throw the the baseball, but he's afraid that he's going to be blamed for it, that it's his fault. Right. And it's the same for innovation. Yep. And so if you can decouple failure and blame, then you can embrace failure and you can, you can celebrate failure and you can look for failure because that's actually what you're doing when you're, when you're doing innovation. And, and then of course, how do you do that? Well, you snuggle up with failure. You get real close to it and you hug it and you say, all right, how are we failing and where are we failing and, and what's not going well? Well, what I'm describing is compassion again. Like it all, it all flows back to this notion of suffering with uh, folks. But blame is one of those markers. When you hear yourself doing that, when you hear yourself in a judgment paradigm, it's a great reminder to back up and say, okay, right now I'm viewing the world as a place where competence is the only thing that matters. And there's a, this whole other world that's open to me that I'm just choosing not to avail, avail myself of, which maybe you don't want to. Like in that particular moment, maybe you're not interested in that. But if you are, if you're interested in turning this into a transformational experience, well, choose some different language. You also talk about labeling people on the team, which is an old, old school habit. That's Larry for you. Um, kind of sloppy, always late. And you talk about like, how do we get into Larry's head and, and work with Larry to improve in a way that isn't blaming, isn't shaming. Uh, but clearly Larry has things that you, he needs to get better at for you to all meet your goals. Walk me through your, your solutions for Larry. Yeah, actually, there's, there's one like super, super <clears throat> easy one that's directly for Larry. And then there's another one that's almost like a, we'll call it a leadership hack, if you will, that works, that works, that's just yep. kind of interesting if you think about it. So the thing that, that works with Larry directly is uh, let's just be real with each other. Again, you're back to trust that thing that, you, that we had talked about before. But it's it's pivoting in my own mind first before I pivot in Larry's mind about the difference between what I want from him versus what I want for him. And if I can't get myself there into that conversation, then I'm never going to get Larry there. But if I can get away from what I want from him, he's just not getting this done. He's not getting this done. He's not getting this done. What do I want for him? I want for him to be authentically empowered to do great work. I believe in in him. He has the ability to do these amazing things, and we've got to turn that loose. And so I want for him to be on the best team he's ever worked on in his life. So and so all the rest of this stuff, and then go have that conversation with Larry. Like I want for you to be on the best team in your life. Let's talk about some of the things that have been happening and how that's working against us. Because I want to help you. See, I want to suffer with you, and I need to know where your suffer points are right now. Because 
these are the things I want for you. And I'd love to hear what you want for me and what you want for this organization. And we're going to connect around that. But again, if you can't, if you can't get there first, Larry can't get there, right? That's the leadership. That's the leadership prerogative. And I think in terms of, so how does that then scale to the team? Well, pretty easily, right? I mean, you talk about the difference between what you want from individuals and what you want for individuals. Well, you can talk about the same thing with the team, but I think far too many leaders, this has been a, this has been a, a, secret of mine that I've been deploying for years, and it's been a, it's given me a strategic and slight edge, is that when I'm bringing people onto my cabinet, for instance, or the team that I, that I work with, I'm not looking, I have about 14 people on my cabinet right now. I'm not looking for the best 14 people in the state of Texas. I actually don't care about that. I don't, I've never talked about it, not once. And I make it really, really clear that I don't think any of us sitting around the table, myself included, is the best. I'm not the best superintendent in Texas. There, there, there are better superintendents in many, many different ways. And I'm not interested in having the best curriculum director. And I'm not interested in having the best finance director or CFO or assistant superintendent. I'm just not interested in that. I don't want the best 14. Because when you, when you instill that culture, then you're, you're instilling a culture of competence and competition. And that's the opposite of compassionate leadership. So I don't want the best 14. So what do I want instead? I, I actually want the 14 best. I want the 14 best people. I want the 14 best teammates in the state of Texas. And the beautiful part about that is my competition is very, very low because very, very few people think this way. They think that they want the best 14. Right. I want the 14 best. So you're you're in Texas, and this will be one of my my last points before we let you go. Um, put this put these words in this book into practice at, at Victoria ISD. I feel like we're seeing this, you know, the one thing we do really well in this country and we do it really well in your state of Texas is, is, is we teach football. And my, um, my son was a peewee football player and he was getting screamed at, uh, his whole team was getting screamed at. And, um, and another coach whose father coached professional football and he came up to me having observed it and said, that's just not the way you do it anymore. That, that it, it, when you coach football today, it's got to be three positives to every negative. You, you have to double down on the positives before the negative means anything. And, and we really, we really have seen that in sports that your model is being played out in many other ways of, of leadership in life, uh, particularly oh, in wow. sports, I think. Bobby Knight doesn't do it anymore. Nobody gets yelled at and screamed at anymore and embarrassed on TV like they used to. <laughs> it's shameful, isn't it? Uh, <laughs> you know, you're absolutely yeah. right. And, and especially in the world of sports, um, gosh, just about three, four weeks ago, I had an opportunity as part of a leadership group to go visit with the Spurs and to see they're building a new training facility, practice facility, and, and how they take the, the whole player into account. I mean, everything from... When the players and the, the facility isn't even finished yet, but they kind of walked us through it so that we could see it. But they are taking into account things like when the players pull into the parking garage and get out of their car, what's the first thing we want for them to see and experience as they're entering the facility before they even get into the facility in the stairwell of the facility? What are the things they're seeing and feeling and so on and so forth? And it's this notion of, of taking very much the, the whole view, the spectrum of 
the player as a person and, and personal development and leadership development and so on and so forth within the con- within the entire context of the organization, the entire San Antonio Spurs. And it was fascinating to hear how there's layer upon layer upon layer built around this. And I think one of the things that as we we're walking through their facility, one of the things that I just happened to catch out of the corner of my eye, but it was um, it was brilliant. And I immediately stole it. I took like a snapshot in my brain and we're going to apply it here in, in our school district is in the in the in the working offices there at the San Antonio Spurs. They had this chart paper up on the wall, just a rudimentary chart, and they divided it into four quadrants. It was a circle divided into four quadrants. And they were calling it the empathy map around the customer experience. And what they what they had done is for the 40 people that worked in these various cubicles, anybody could go up there and list some aspect of the customer experience and how they might struggle with the interaction of the team or purchasing tickets or whatever it was. It didn't really matter, but they were trying to empathize with the with the ticket holders. And I thought, now this is an organization that gets it like they get it on a very deep that's that's compassion at work i you know it's funny one more uh thought that came to mind as i was reading your book uh the secret to transfer transformational leadership uh when i was a about 18 19 years old my grandmother had recently passed away and she was 90 years old. And and I I was blown away by the technological um, landscape that she had traversed, right? The first picture I ever saw of her, she's 15. She's in Arkansas. She's on a buckboard with my grandfather and they're riding off from their, from their wedding horse and buggy. And then she saw, you know, aviation, commercial aviation, landing on the moon, right? Like, oh my God. And I always thought like, Maybe I'll never, ever see that kind of transformation in my own life. It would be impossible, I thought at the time. And now here we are. I'm 55. Um, you know, uh, the, the changes in culture, the changes in uh, really the, the change in culture mirrors the change in technology that my grandmother saw. And, and we really are getting a whole new kind of young student in our lives, aren't we, that we have to adapt to in, in just the way my grandmother yeah. had to adapt to cars, horses, from horses to cars yeah, to yeah, airline Tom. travel. Chat GPT is three months old. <laughs> I just put that in yeah. perspective. Yeah. And here's a great way to frame what you just said. Here's a really great way to frame what you just said. In entering kindergartner today, he is working with the dumbest piece of artificial intelligence technology software that he will work with in his entire life. This is the very dumbest piece of equipment he will ever work with. That's terrifyingly fascinating. Well, on that note, uh, what's the point of waking up in the morning? I don't know. Dr. Quentin Shepard, the book, uh, I I strongly recommend it. And it's also, I, 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 I forgot to take it on a trip. So I downloaded it on Audible, so it's easily available on Audible. Uh, the Secret to Transformational Leadership by Dr. Quentin Shepard, and it is uh, it is well worth a read, even for those of you like me who don't do quote unquote self help type books. Uh, this is this will make you think in a whole new way, and I really appreciate you appreciate you being on the show, Quentin. Have a, a great rest of your week, and as you close out the school year, I hope you have a, a time some time to relax. Thanks summer. so much for having me. It's really been an honor. You're welcome. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening. 
If you enjoyed this conversation, subscribe to our YouTube channel and find us on your favorite podcast platform. On the Clock is part of the Stratagos Podcast Network. To view the entire lineup of shows, please visit us at stratagosgroup.com. See you next time.